0: The first reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 14, beginning at the 17th verse. That can be found on page 12 of the Pew Bibles. Page 12, Genesis 14, beginning at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. The second reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. That's Hebrews, chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. That can be found on page 1207 in the Pew Bibles. One thousand two hundred and seven. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to God.
1: James, thank you very much for reading uh, those passages for us. Uh, You might want to turn back to Genesis 14, but perhaps uh, stick a piece of paper or something Uh, in Hebrews 7. We will get there in due time. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer, though, as we begin. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Father God, we do thank and praise you for your word. Thank you that you make yourself known. Thank you that you speak. And we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you may know that one of my brothers uh, is a TV producer in hollywood and he 's uh, just had a show picked up by netflix he 's quite happy it 's all on the family whatsapp and uh, like many in his business, he is longing his company are longing that it 's going to be the next uh, hit quiz show. I don't know if you're kind of into quiz shows. I do know that a few years back, uh, deal or no deal was all the rage. Uh, Maybe you'll admit to watching it or not. Uh, As far as I can tell, it was all about knowing when to strike a bargain, uh, when to make a compromise. Uh, Fail to make a deal, and you leave with nothing. Uh, Do the right deal, and you go home with megabucks. Uh, Compromise is a, a funny thing, isn't it? In some instances... It's absolutely necessary on a quiz to win the prize. Or a stubborn family deciding where to go on holiday if no one can agree is just miserable. And there are other times there when compromise is absolutely the worst thing to do. Uh, Compromising on biblical truth. Uh, The Bible says uh, sex is only for marriage and marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Uh, There's the temptation to compromise with society's worldview, just to to bend and and sway with the prevailing cultural winds. Uh, Tweak a little bit here, ignore a little bit there, compromise on what God clearly says. So if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, compromise is an issue we face day in and day out. And did we notice it's the issue Abraham faces in our reading this morning, that one from Genesis 14? Uh, We'll remember, Abraham has been given huge, massive promises of a land, a people, a a name, and being a blessing to all nations. But it hasn't all been plain sailing so far, has it? Uh, There's famine in the land, should he stay or should he go? And uh, he bottles it and goes to Egypt. Uh, Then Lot and Abraham can't all all fit in the promised land, what to do? Uh, Abraham generously offers Lot first refusal. A lot ends up kidnapped and in peril. Will Abraham rescue his nephew? But on his return from successfully rescuing Lot, Abraham is faced with a much more subtle conflict, and one that could trip him up, a conflict God's people still face today. It's a conflict shown in the contrast between these two kings we meet. And that's the first thing we'll be looking at. You'll see it there if you've got the outline in front of you. A tale of two cities, well, kings really, Sodom and Salem. If we were here last week, uh, we may have noticed that this true Bible story could end quite happily at verse 16. But now we get this little episode featuring Abraham, uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and the king of Sodom. Uh, We're familiar with Abraham. and we met the king of Sodom last week. But this new chap, Melchizedek, steps onto the stage. And what's highlighted for us is the contrast between these two kings. Uh, Did you notice how verse 17, the king of Sodom, arrives? But we don't hear from him until verse 21. Uh, In the middle, Melchizedek arrives, verse 18, and then he speaks, verse 19. It's it's a sandwich telling us to spot the difference. You see, just look down. What does the king of Sodom bring? Nothing. Uh, Even though Abram's rescued all his people and goods, he brings nothing. Uh, What does Melchizedek bring? Uh, Bread and wine, shorthand for a royal banquet. Uh, what are the first words on Melchizedek's lips? Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. Just compare those to the first words we hear from the king of Sodom Give me. Now, words of blessing or words of grasping self interest? Uh, the king of Sodom's only concerned with what he's getting out of this whole affair. But Melchizedek points Abraham and us to God Most High. Uh, did we spot just how many times he's mentioned? Verse 17 again. Uh, after his return from the defeat of Kedalioma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies. Into your hand, Melchizedek reminds Abraham the victory belongs to God, and God alone. It's the God most high who delivered those four kings into Abraham's hand. Uh, but the king of Sodom he, he clearly thinks he's somehow deserving. Somehow he had a, had a hand in the victory. Verse twenty-one: the, uh, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, "Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself." I'm not quite sure how he thinks he's in any place to bargain, as we saw last week. The only thing he seems to have managed to do is to survive. And so this offer from the king of Sodom feels a little bit like you've just, um, I don't know, rescued a relative and their drug dealer friend from the local mafia kingpin. I'm sure you do that all the time, but just humor me. Uh, you get home and you realise there's um, also several uh, suitcases full of cash and drugs in the car uh, that they, they came home in. Uh, you've got your relative home safe and sound, and then their drug dealer friend comes up to you and says, uh, look, uh, you know those suitcases you found in the car? Uh, they, they belong to me. Uh, you keep the cash, I'll keep the drugs, all right? It's a kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of deal. Uh, the king of Sodom says, look, look Abraham... Everything in life's a little bit of give and take, isn't it? You've got to help me out here. I want to help you. Will you help me? What do you say? Isn't it the way of the world? If only we'll just give in and go along with the cultural elite. They'll they'll take care of us, welcome us. Compromise looks so good, offers so much, and ends in ruin. One king offers food and blessing and asks nothing in return. Another king offers Abraham the loot, if he's willing to split it. Uh, Sodom is all about a get-rich-quick deal. It's all centred on me. Uh, Salem is all about the creator of heaven and earth who meets all our needs and needs nothing from us. It's actually a contrast we see throughout the Bible. Uh, ever since Cain and Abel, there have been these, these two approaches, these two ways. Undeserved Blessing versus paying your own way? Is this perhaps a foreshadowing of the contrast between grace and works, between gospel and religion, between receiving God's favour and trying to earn God's favour? Maybe. If you've come along this morning still making up your mind about Christian things, please be clear about this one thing Christianity is not primarily about what we do for God but what he's done for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Even less is it about earning God's favour through what we do in getting a blessing. It is all about his undeserved kindness to people like us who absolutely don't deserve it. Every single one of us deserves God's judgment, his punishment. And yet in Jesus' And his death, he lavishes his grace on all who turn to him in repentance and faith. God always takes the initiative. One king, graciously giving. One king, grasping and greedy, but offering huge wealth. And so Abraham is faced with a choice. Which king will he side with? Uh, How's he going to respond and so we turn to Abraham's response to these two kings. And Abraham accepts blessing and he avoids compromise. There's our, our second big theme. He accepts blessing and avoids compromise. He receives the blessing. He rejects resolutely that compromise. Uh, the last time we had mention of blessing was back at the beginning of uh, chapter 12. And now we get the first mention of a priest in the Bible. And he's blessing Abraham. And blessing God. Verse 19. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham uh, gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gives 10% of the loot, the spoil, to Melchizedek. But why? He doesn't have to, does he? And Melchizedek acts first. And Abraham's response is a free will gift. Melchizedek celebrates Abraham as God's warrior and blesses him. Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as a legitimate priest and king of his God, and so he offers this gift. It's actually just a beautiful little scene going on here. But how will Abraham respond to Sodom's offer? If we're familiar with our, our Bibles, because we know Sodom is full of wicked people, we tend to read this as if uh, the king of Sodom is like some kind of panto villain. We almost kind of picture his outfit as he sidles up to Abraham, And we might fail to see the real temptation Abraham's under. We might not feel the pull, the allure of the king of Sodom's offer. But when we remember God's blessing so far has been expressed in part in material wealth for Abraham. This looks like a shortcut to God's blessing. But in reality, only one king offers true blessing, which is why Abraham responds the way he does in verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. It does uh, raise the question of why Abraham's happy to accept wealth from a king back in chapter 12, do you remember that, but but not here. Uh, Presumably it's in part because he knows of the wickedness of Sodom. We've had that flagged flagged up for us, chapter 13, verse 13. Uh, But also it's the context here in chapter 14, there's the real danger some might look, someone might look on and think that Sodom has given Abraham a leg up, that somehow he's responsible for the blessing Abraham receives. And not just wealth, but an alliance and possibly a sizable chunk of the promised land. But Abraham couldn't be more emphatic, could he? Absolutely no way. Abraham puts all his eggs in Melchizedek's basket. It's as if he's saying to Sodom, you can take your people and your goods. You can take your thread and your sandal straps. I'm not going to take a thing from you. God is the only one I need to trust. He alone is the most high, creator of heaven and earth. His is the only blessing I need. Abraham acknowledges the victory belongs to God. In fact, everything belongs to God. Possessor of heaven and earth. Abraham doesn't need to grab at God's promises. He sides with Melchizedek, not Sodom. He's going to go the way of faith, not jumping the gun on God's blessings. And So Abraham is a model of faith. He rejects compromise and taking a shortcut to God's blessings. It it is a real test of Abraham's faith. The temptation to take credit for the victory himself. Sure, God, God helped me, he might think, but uh, you I know, still had to make that 300-mile round trip. Why shouldn't he get a little extra credit? Hadn't he earned it? The temptation to, to compromise, to shortcut on God's blessings. But Abraham trusts God to fulfill his promises in his time, in his way. So this is the, the TV pastor saying, God wants you to be happy. And if you just dial this number below and give generously, then you'll receive that happiness you crave. This is that the woman desperate for love and affirmation and so she chases those things by getting entangled with a non-Christian guy. This is that the dad's struggling to make ends meet so he just shaves a few numbers here and there on the tax return and after all he convinces himself this means I'll be able to start giving to church. Here's the young Christian couple. They've been... Dating for a while, and so they tell themselves it's okay to sleep together before marriage. We love each other, we're committed to each other, it's not hurting anyone. This is the student at uni wanting to make Christianity sound more appealing, and so they, they go along with those interfaith events saying we all worship one God. Will we take the shortcut, the compromise, the deal? Or will we choose humble obedience, devotion to God most high? Will we wait patiently for God to fulfill his promises in his time, in his way? But what about when we fail? Now, Abraham here is acting as the model of faith, and yet so often we don't have model faith. We feel as if we're just kind of slipping and sliding our way towards the new creation. Well, then we need to remember we have the perfect priestly king in Jesus. That's our our final point, our our perfect priestly king. How do you solve a problem like Melchizedek? Here is where Melchizedek points us. Imagine we're enveloped in a thick fog like being one of those old black and white films if you're into them. In the first Sherlock Holmes story, Arthur Conan Doyle describes such an occasion. It was a foggy, cloudy morning and a dun-coloured veil hung over the housetops looking like the reflection of the mud-coloured streets beneath. Uh, you breathe in the damp air. Uh, you, you try and see your way, make out things, and then a, a shadowy figure emerges from the fog. Their footsteps are muffled. You barely hear them coming. As they approach you, you glance in the direction pass you by, and then they're they're just swallowed up in the fog, disappeared from view. You see them briefly, and then they're gone, never to be seen again. In the book of Genesis, the person who emerges from the fog is this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. There have been all these warring kings in Genesis 14, and then another king comes called King of Salem, or, or Shalom, king of peace. He's entirely above the fray. We see him briefly, then he's gone. He passes in front of us and then disappears to be seen no more. What are we to make of this enigma that is Melchizedek? Well, as I mentioned, he is the first priest we read of in the Bible. And as we read on, we find it is very strange to be both priest and king. Now Later kings like Saul and Uzziah get in trouble for trying to be both. And where's Melchizedek come from? Where does he go? We don't hear anything else about him in Genesis. In fact, he's only mentioned once more in the entire Old Testament. A thousand years later, King David is the first Israelite king to be sitting on Melchizedek's throne in Jerusalem. And he says in Psalm 110, "'The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, "'you are a priest forever.'" in the order of Melchizedek. A psalm all about God's king and the language so extravagant, so rich, it must be talking about God's divine forever king. King David looks forward to a divine king who's also going to be an eternal priest, a priest like Melchizedek. God's king was always going to be a new kind of everlasting priest that Melchizedek foreshadows. And so it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament and and to Hebrews, we find Jesus is the one being pointed to. Uh, In Hebrews, the author mentions Melchizedek seven times. In chapter 5, he begins to unpack Psalm 110. He kind of holds off and and starts again in chapter 6. But it isn't really until chapter 7 that we get to the meat of the argument. And the argument is quite dense. So do just put a finger in Genesis 14 and flick back to Hebrews 7, page 1207. Hebrews 7, I'll just read from the end of chapter 6, verse 19, page 1207. 6, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the uh, Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Uh, Melech means uh, king, and Zadok is righteousness, so we can see where the meaning of his name comes from. And whilst quoting Psalm 110, the author of Hebrews clearly knows Melchizedek's, uh, Melchizedek's backstory in Genesis 14. And he points out no explanation or background about him is given, which is super rare in the Old Testament for anyone important. In the Old Testament, anyone who's anyone really has a genealogy, And Melchizedek simply appears, though, gives Abraham bread and wine, blesses him, receives the 10% from Abraham, and then just disappears as quickly as he appeared. It all seems a bit random. Who is he? We don't have time to, to fully unpack it, but the big thing we need to know is he is greater than Abraham. He's a king and a priest. He's important. Even his name shows us that. He's superior by name. He's superior by nature. Uh, Verse 3 is a little strange. It's telling us he's without beginning or end as far as the Bible tells us. I don't think it's that Melchizedek is still wandering around in the Middle East somewhere. No, he's not the son of God, but verse 3, he's one resembling uh, the son of God. And then uh, in Hebrews, he goes on to say in verses 4 to 10, how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, so much greater than the Levitical priesthood, because it's as if Levi was in Abraham at the time. It's a little strange to our ears, but the big takeaway is Melchizedek is the better priest. He's even superior to Abraham. And Melchizedek is a picture of an everlasting priest. Verse 3, verse 8, verse 16. Not, not actually eternal, Melchizedek himself, but, but a picture, a type of the Son of God who is and the Levitical priesthood was never going to cut it. They were sinful. They kept on dying. The law was weak and useless, verse 18. It made nothing perfect. But it was never meant to be permanent. So why is such wonderful news? Melchizedek points us to Jesus. His resurrection proves he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the God-appointed priest, not inherited. He's immortal and sinless, greater than Levi, the superior high priest. He is the better forever king-priest like Melchizedek. And so he can truly do what the priests in the Old Testament could never do. Let me pick it up, if you've got Hebrews 7 open there at verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I just love verse 25. Jesus is able to save completely to the uttermost It has the the double meaning of save forever and save entirely. It is a wonderful, glorious truth. Death can't stop Jesus like it stopped all the other priests. He is a a priest like Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek Melchizedek in in Genesis 14 is a bit like Chekhov's gun. If you read about that in English, Chekhov's gun is a, a literary device where something's highlighted in a novel, uh, it seems strange at the time. You can't quite figure it out. But it makes sense uh, later on as you read on to find out, well, that, that was the kind of real murder weapon or the way the butler escaped or whatever it might be. Uh, Melchizedek seems a little bit odd in Genesis 14. Psalm 110 is, a, is intriguing. And then it all falls into place as we realize it's all pointing to Jesus. Hebrews 7 uh, fleshes it out for us. So we are to follow the example of Abraham. But when we fail, and we all will, we must remember Jesus is the better priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So as we close, how is the the rubber going to hit the road, as it were? Well, hopefully the, the big idea is clear. Don't compromise but side with King Jesus. I know some of the situations some of us are in. I can't predict the future, though. I don't know what this week will bring. But I do know all of us will face that temptation to shortcut God's blessing and to compromise, to do anything that will take me away from resting on Jesus and the blessing he alone gives, anything that would rob God of the glory he deserves. So whether we find ourselves mired in sin or having a a wildly successful week like Abraham does earlier in Genesis 14, we all need to run to Jesus, our great priestly king, to honour him. And maybe we could resolve, like Abraham, not to do anything that would take the glory away from God, from people seeing the victory belongs to him and him alone. I so often want people to think I'm great, but Abraham wants people to know the Lord God most high is great. Are there things coming up where I know I'll be tempted to take the glory for myself? How can I resolve to keep pointing to God, giving him the glory he deserves? And the right response is always to honour Jesus. And whatever our circumstances, we must be like Abraham and side with, run to our priest and king and be blessed by him. If we're not yet a Christian, will we turn to him? And will we keep turning to Jesus day by day, the true king of peace, the the true king of righteousness? We come to receive grace from him, the one who sustains us, the one who provides, the one who gives blessing without asking anything in return. And when we fail, we remember Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and we go back to him. stick with him honour him, put all of our eggs in that one basket because we know that he gives us what we need and don't deserve. We can't manipulate that blessing, but he gives it freely. Doesn't it free us to to say no to any compromises thrown at us or subtly offered? The great priest-king Jesus Christ offers no material Guarantee, but the promise of eternal life itself, restoration to God. He offers us the one thing that will truly satisfy and gives it freely. Let's pray together. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Father God, we do thank and praise you for the example of Abraham. Thank you for his uh, model faith as he rejects compromise, rejects any shortcut to receiving your blessing. And we do pray that you would give us the strength to imitate him. And when we fail, thank you that Jesus is the priest Melchizedek points us to. Thank you that he is able to save. Please help us in whatever situations you put us in to side with Jesus, to receive blessing from him and him alone, and to honour him. In his name we pray. Amen.